Thank you. Uh, so what we're going to do today is uh, Charles and I will each speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll take uh, questions together um, at the end. Uh, I did not pick this title, but I like the title um, because it, from the get-go, starts to perhaps refocus um, those of you in the pain field on thinking of conditions like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, interstitial cystitis, um, a number of overlapping conditions as problems with sensory amplification in the central nervous system or in the brain. Um, and I'll talk more about that and expand upon that uh, over the uh, context of my talk. <clears throat> I'm also going to um, talk about how I think we are finally at the point in the pain field where we can treat pain based on a better understanding of the underlying mechanism or mechanisms that are operative in a given individual. We've had this historical tendency to think that if we know the disease that someone has, like osteoarthritis or fibromyalgia, um, that we, uh, based on the disease, we would be able to treat these individuals' uh, pain and other symptoms. That's turned out to be fairly unsuccessful. Um, and I think that um, this is a strategy that people like Mitchell Max advocated probably 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but we're finally there. I think we're finally to the point where, um, based on a more nuanced look at a chronic pain patient, or using some simple patient-reported outcomes that I'll talk about um, in the context of my lecture, I think we actually can start to, in individuals with a single disease causing their pain, like osteoarthritis or fibromyalgia, get an idea of what the underlying mechanisms are in that individual and treat based on the mechanism um, rather than on the disease. So the objectives here are to talk about the three underlying mechanisms that can cause chronic pain, um, explain the most effective pharmacologic therapies for each mechanism, and then how to integrate pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies um, in the overall management of chronic pain. There's two conditions that I'm going to talk about today, um, not so much because these are the most important pain conditions, but um, to use them as metaphors. The first condition I'm going to talk about is osteoarthritis. Um, I am trained as a rheumatologist. I don't really function as a rheumatologist anymore. I'm a pain researcher, but this is from whence I came, uh, the, from the field of rheumatology. And osteoarthritis um, is probably, in aggregate, the most common cause of chronic pain. And when I uh, was first training as a rheumatologist, we really thought that the disease model of osteoarthritis was fairly simple, that if people had um, damage to their cartilage, loss of cartilage, um, and moved to a radiograph on the right where they ended up having bone rubbing against bone because they had entirely lost their cartilage, that that would always hurt. Um, it turns out that that's totally false. Um, I'm not going to get into some of the revelations in osteoarthritis that perhaps this is more a disease of the underlying bone than the cartilage. What, but I really, really am going to talk about is how terrible radiographs are at predicting who with osteoarthritis is going to have pain. Um, and you may not know this if you're not an osteoarthritis researcher, but 40% of people in the US population like that have a radiograph of their knee, like the one on the right, do not have any pain. They have bone rubbing against bone. They have Kelgren-Lorentz grade 3 or grade 4 um, osteoarthritis on x-ray, but they're totally asymptomatic. And then we have individuals on the left side of the continuum that can have severe knee pain, and they would have an entirely normal radiograph. <clears throat> and so although osteoarthritis was historically thought of as being our classic peripheral pain condition, We've known for a couple decades that there's a tremendous disparity between what you see on an x-ray and whether people are experiencing pain. We've had this historical tendency that when we see people 
who have pain that we don't see on an x-ray, we blame them or we blame psychological factors like anxiety, depression, catastrophizing. And those certainly may be playing a role in some individuals, but really what I'm going to talk about um, are central nervous system factors that are not um, psychological or psychiatric that really have a lot more to do with um, sensory augmentation, pain augmentation in the brain, in the central nervous system that seems to be predicting why some individuals with bad radiographic changes don't have pain and why other individuals who have entirely normal x-rays or MRIs are having pain, uh, primarily because their central nervous system volume control or gain for pain processing or sensory processing is set too high. One of the interesting things that's happened in the field of osteoarthritis is when I was trained as a rheumatologist 30 or so years ago, we thought that our treatments like NSAIDs, opioids, um, and arthroplasty would almost always work well in people with osteoarthritis. And when you look at NSAIDs and opioids, the effect size of NSAIDs and opioids in osteoarthritis of the knee is exactly the same as the effect size of the approved drugs in fibromyalgia. People have this tendency to think that the drugs that we use to treat fibromyalgia um, are ineffective compared to drugs that we use to treat other pain conditions. If you really look at the Cochrane meta-analyses of the effect size of, of NSAIDs and opioids in osteoarthritis of the knee, they are exactly the same as the effect size of the centrally acting analgesics that we use in conditions like fibromyalgia. And I'll show you data um, that, that really shows um, that this model is flawed in that 20 to 30 percent of people that have their knee or their hip replaced because they have severe radiographic damage and severe ongoing nociceptive input in their knee do not have relief of their pain, suggesting that in many individuals this may not be the problem, what's going on out in the joint, that the primary problem might instead um, be a problem with central nervous system pain and sensory processing. So there's really unanimity in the pain field that there are three underlying mechanisms for pain. We don't necessarily agree what we should call these mechanisms, but we agree that one mechanism is that someone can have ongoing nociceptive input that's driving their pain. If someone has nociceptive input that's driving their pain, they actually will be more responsive to an NSAID, an opioid, a surgical procedure, an injection, because that's where those drug and non-drug therapies work the best. Um, a second category that we've known about forever is neuropathic pain. But this third category, there's really been an explosion of knowledge in this third category of pain conditions in the last couple decades, in part because of the advent of research tools to study these conditions, especially functional neuroimaging. Um, and so we now realize that a lot of chronic pain conditions, especially chronic pain conditions that are more prevalent in younger individuals, um, are primarily central nervous system driven pain conditions. And these would include things like headache, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, interstitial cystitis, TMJ disorder, and a whole host of conditions that, um, that we used to be somewhat perplexed by because we knew that these weren't being driven by um, damage or inflammation in the areas of the body where these individuals experience pain. But now with functional neuroimaging, with quantitative sensory testing, we can see what really is driving the pain in these individuals and in these pain conditions. Now the thing that's more complicated is it's not so simple that you can take a, a single disease like fibromyalgia and say that everyone that has fibromyalgia has only um, centralized pain because some people with fibromyalgia have ongoing nociceptive input out in the periphery. They have comorbid osteoarthritis, comorbid myofascial pain, and identifying and treating that 
can be very helpful in those individuals because ongoing nociceptive input can drive the CNS processes. The original description of central sensitization by Clifford Wolf was that this um, CNS augmentation or amplification was actually in some cases being driven by nociceptive input and that's probably the, uh, an appropriate term to use for that is central sensitization where there's other individuals that have uh, centrally mediated pain where it seems to be primarily a CNS disorder that these individuals are born with um, and in their childhood or their teens they start developing pain in different areas of their body and it simply just moves around over the course of their life until they finally have pain that's so widespread that we call that fibromyalgia. But we really now know that almost um, every pain condition is at some level a mixed pain state. Some people with conditions like osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, or cancer pain can have neuropathic elements to their pain or uh, a prominent CNS component to their pain and some people that are in the neuropathic pain disease categories or the centralized disease categories can also have ongoing nociceptive input. So you really have to take a more nuanced look at every chronic pain patient no matter what the disease is that they're coming in with and try to figure out which of these underlying mechanisms is operative in each individual and treat based on the mechanism rather than the underlying disease. And I think that if we simply did that, our current treatments for chronic pain would be way more effective because we have a tendency, especially in the United States, to think that most pain is due to ongoing peripheral nociceptive input and to overuse treatments like opioids, NSAIDs, surgical procedures and injections that are only going to work if the pain is due to ongoing nociceptive input. They're not going to work if that pain is more of CNS origin. <clears throat> So one of the analogies that I've started using the last five years or so to describe pain processing to non-pain researchers is the analogy that pain processing is a lot like an electric guitar. In this analogy, the strings on the electric guitar are akin to the different types of sensory nerves or nerve fibers that we have out in the periphery. And it is true that C fibers and A delta fibers and the different nerves out in the periphery bring qualitatively different information about what's going on out in the periphery um, up to the brain to be felt as pain. And it is also true that you can get the guitar to be louder by strumming those strings harder, but the primary determinant of how loud an electric guitar is is not how hard you strum the strings, but what is the amplifier set at. And in this analogy, the amplifier is the spinal cord in the brain. There, um, you all are sitting now, you've been sitting now for uh, 15 or 20 minutes, you all have nociceptors firing constantly in your back and your buttocks, but most of you are not experiencing pain right now in your back and your buttocks because the central nervous system is not allowing that nociceptive input to go all the way up to the brain to be felt as pain. If you are a chronic pain patient or if you are a more pain sensitive person, over the context of this talk, you will start getting pain in your back and your buttocks. Sitting in a chair is the equivalent of a quantitative sensory test. The longer you can sit in a chair, without hurting, the, more, the less pain sensitive you are. Um, other poor man's quantitative sensory tests are whether someone hurts when a blood pressure cuff is inflated, if it bothers them when they're wearing tight clothing, um, if it bothers them when someone hugs them, the, you're getting an indication that that person is more sensitive over the, their entire body. And this is why we used to do tender point counts in fibromyalgia. Now I hope you don't anymore do tender point counts to diagnose fibromyalgia because the whole person is tender. You can push anywhere you want in someone with fibromyalgia and they'll be tender. Um, but this is now 
um, this notion, I think, is actually fairly accurate, um, is that you can either have pain because the amplifier is set too high um, or because the strings are being strummed too hard. Um, but these individuals on the right side of the screen who have um, a lot of ongoing nociceptive input because we can see that their radiographs or MRIs have a lot of damage or inflammation but don't have any pain are people that are pain insensitive, whereas the people on the left side of the screen who have pain in spite of having a normal knee x-ray on quantitative sensory testing and on brain imaging are the group of people that are much more pain sensitive, and that's why they're feeling pain is because the amplifier is set too high, not because the problem is out in the periphery. <clears throat> so the centralized pain states, I will first say that this is the term that our group likes to use, but we agree or acknowledge that this is a misnomer because one of the things you have to get used to when you're looking for people that have centralized their pain is don't just look for their pain. Um, look also for other comorbid symptoms that are coming from the central nervous system that will almost always co-accompany their pain. So we know that the best way to identify someone that has centralized their pain is they're going to have multifocal pain in many areas of the body, not just a single area of the body. And, and if I am stranded on a desert island with 100 chronic pain patients and I do one thing to figure out where people are on this continuum of either being more peripheral pain or being more central pain, I'm going to give people a body map and I'm going to ask them to first mark with X's all the areas that they have pain right now. Um, and then I'm going to ask them all the areas of the body that they have ever had to go to a doctor for over the course of their lifetime for pain, and you will get a really good sense. The more X's that people make will give you a very good sense of where someone is on this volume control or gain setting, because it turns out that in a lot of different studies that the, how widespread the distribution of someone's pain is is probably the single best phenotypic marker of whether their pain is coming from the central nervous system or their pain is coming from the periphery. If that knee osteoarthritis patient only has pain in a single knee, it's highly likely there's something wrong in their knee and that they're going to respond to NSAIDs, opioids, injections, and surgical procedures. But if they have pain in their knee and they have pain in their head and they have all sorts of other pain and they don't sleep very well and they have fatigue, that's a blinking neon light to you that they may have something wrong in their knee, but superimposed upon this, they have something wrong in their brain that they're amplifying, augmenting pain and sensory information from around their body, and that the central nervous system is an important therapeutic target in that individual in addition to um, what might be going on out in the periphery with respect to ongoing nociceptive input. So this is the phenotype that we look for. We look for multifocal pain combined with fatigue, sleep problems, mood problems, and memory problems. And then the other thing that we're realizing is that people with conditions like interstitial cystitis, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, are not just sensitive to pain around the body, they're sensitive to the brightness of light, the loudness of noises, to odors. And if you start querying your chronic pain patients about sensory sensitivity outside of pain sensitivity, it'll help you get an idea of whether someone has centralized their pain, whether they have this phenotype, and it'll be an additional set of questions that can help you determine where on this continuum people are and whether you need to be um, treating the CNS sensory amplification above and beyond treating what might be going on out in the periphery. Now, these conditions are incredibly common. The NIH last, a couple years ago, coined the term chronic overlapping pain conditions to indicate nine conditions 
uh, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, headache, temporal mandibular joint disorder, interstitial cystitis, dry eye disease that seem to have a lot of features in common with respect to their underlying pathophysiology. Now, of course, some people with low back pain um, have something wrong in their back as well, but a high proportion of people that are especially seen in tertiary care settings for low back pain um, have prominent CNS contributions to their pain um, rather than having a, a primary problem in their back. They get a lot of injections and a lot of surgical procedures um, acting as if it's primarily a back problem, um, but this is why we see things like failed back syndrome and other failures to respond to these types of therapies. Psychiatrists have called this somatization. This can actually be triggered by being deployed to war. This has been a major problem now for the military after deployments. The first Gulf War, the soldiers that have been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan have come back with very high rates of centralized pain in addition to PTSD, which makes them um, especially difficult to treat. So the other condition I'm going to allude to today is fibromyalgia. I refer to fibromyalgia as the F word because some people are always going to hate fibromyalgia. I don't know what it is about fibromyalgia that makes the hair on the back of people's neck raise. Um, I think I know what it is, and it's those five fibromyalgia patients you have that make your life miserable. I hate to tell you, but it's not their fibromyalgia that makes your life miserable. It's their, it, it's the, their other personality disorders and other things that makes your life miserable. And if you want to be a good pain clinician and really be empathetic to your patients that have chronic pain, you have to figure out a way to get rid of those five people in your clinic. Because those are people that will make everyone's life miserable, that are never going to get better no matter what you do. But the problem is, when I say the word fibromyalgia, that's what you think of. You don't think of the garden variety fibromyalgia that responds incredibly well to a low dose of a tricyclic, a little bit of explanation about what's going on with them, and an exercise program, and you never see the person again because they have sort of garden variety primary care fibromyalgia, not tertiary care fibromyalgia, which I think is much more so a marker of someone that, that has had um, uh, poor care for their chronic pain for decades, um, and they finally get to have that fibromyalgia label. There were a lot of things that we had wrong about fibromyalgia. Tender points are stupid. There's a lot of things about fibromyalgia um, that are stupid, but I think most of us who study centralized pain and fibromyalgia don't think of fibromyalgia in the 90s old school way. We really do think of it as the poster child for a centralized pain disorder. And if you can recognize that fibromyalgia phenotype, um, the, even when it's sub-threshold, even when someone wouldn't in any way meet criteria for fibromyalgia, it'll help you identify the people that you're seeing with chronic pain that do have a prominent central nervous system component to their chronic pain and we think, but we don't know, that if you were to use the same drug and non-drug therapies that we advocate using that, are, that have an evidence base in fibromyalgia, in people who have sub-threshold fibromyalgia, who don't quite meet criteria for fibromyalgia, but they're getting there, these therapies may work better yet because the people don't have all the psychological, cognitive, and other comorbidities that make them so difficult to treat and so refractory to especially pharmacologic treatment. So this is um, the new criteria for fibromyalgia um, that were uh, published in 2010-2011 are entirely symptom-based. I'd highly recommend if you do cl uh, pain clinical practice that you give this measure in clinical practice to your patients. I think it'll help you a lot in clinical practice identify what, where people are on this continuum. And I'll show you some data later that shows how powerful um, in people with osteoarthritis 
where, what their fibromyalgia score is on this measure. Um, even people that don't even come close to meeting criteria for fibromyalgia that have osteoarthritis as their primary disease, the higher they score on this measure by having a couple different locations of multifocal pain with a little fatigue, a little bit of memory problems, the, the less likely they are to respond to knee or hip arthroplasty, to opioids, to all of the things that do work well when pain is primarily due to ongoing nociceptive input, but don't seem to work well when the pain is of CNS origin. And at the end, I'll present a case. Charles and I were both going to present a case of a, a couple osteoarthritis patients and just showing how two osteoarthritis patients with slightly different fibromyalgia scores are markedly different uh, with respect to how responsive they are to knee or hip arthroplasty with improvement of their pain and how responsive they are to opioids. So um, although I disagree with almost everything Fred Wolf has ever written in his career, um, I like the, the fact, I, I love arguing with Fred, um, but I like the fact that he coined this term fibromyalgia ness to say that we really should be attending to where people are on this continuum rather than thinking that a certain threshold is what you need to diagnose someone with fibromyalgia and that's fibromyalgia and let's forget all the people who are just below that threshold. This measure, the 2011 criteria, are linear. If someone goes from a score of zero on that measure to two by having a couple areas of pain, their opioid non-responsiveness goes up, their surgery non-responsiveness goes up. It's linear over the entire uh, uh, continuum of the measure. So just focusing on people at the end of the continuum is like looking at the tip of the iceberg and, and, and really waiting until people get to a, a, a end stage of centralized pain before we treat them, rather than identifying this early and intervening more aggressively. And so I, that's why I show this slide, is that categorical fibromyalgia, the people that meet criteria for fibromyalgia, are a very small portion of the universe of people that have this fundamental underlying problem um, that, that, that have different labels, like um, low back pain, osteoarthritis, irritable bowel, and things like that. Um, and, and it's really, um, if you start identifying and treating the centralized pain below the surface of the ocean, these sub-threshold people, I think you'll actually do a lot better in your ongoing clinical care and clinical practice because you will be identifying a, a, an underlying mechanism for that person's pain that, that heretofore hadn't been treated, hadn't been recognized. So this is what I'm looking at. If you're an orthopedic surgeon, people come into you with knee pain. And most orthopedic surgeons don't give people a pain diagram, but if they did, um, a lot of their people with knee pain, although they might operate on the knee, look like this. Do you really think fixing that person's knee is going to make them better? Now, this, I'm showing the two extremes here, to, obviously, but everything in between seems to be really important. It's people that have pain in two or three or four areas of the body, especially if they don't have an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis that would cause pain in several areas of the body due to inflammation, um, that really should be something that you get clued into. And you should also be clued into people that have had chronic pain in different locations of their body over the course of their lifetime, that now when they're coming to you, they might only have prominent pain in one or two locations, but starting in their childhood or their teens, these are individuals that clearly had a high volume control setting and the pain was presenting in different areas of the body just depending on what decade it was in their life. Now this is indi in indicative of psychological comorbidity. When someone feels the need to X out what you put 
and put their own descriptive terms. These are the fibromyalgia patients that, that you know their pharmacist by their first name, that you know their telephone number um, by heart. But again, you have pain patients like this that have every type of chronic pain, not just fibromyalgia. If we look at the continuum of chronic pain conditions and whether they are more peripheral or more central in given individuals, what you find um, is that osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, about 30% of people with those conditions will have prominent CNS components to their pain. Um, sickle cell disease, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, low back pain are more 50-50. Um, and then conditions like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, tension, headache, temporomandibular joint disorder, irritable bowel are more central. But, but in the last 20 years, we've identified peripheral factors and subsets of people with those conditions as well. So again, you can't use the disease label that people have and infer because the disease label is fibromyalgia or IBS, everything that person has is central, or because they have the disease label osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, that everything that that person experiences is going to be peripheral. You have to have a more nuanced look at people and really try to identify multiple mechanisms that might be operative in a single individual and treat based on those mechanisms. Um, one of the things that really makes me cringe is when people say we don't understand the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia. We understand fibromyalgia extremely well. There haven't been any negative trials in fibromyalgia in the last 10 or 15 years. Compared to neuropathic pain where there's roadkill all over the place because people have thought that the targets that, that in preclinical models that were important didn't show up to be important. Every drug that is working either by lowering a neurotransmitter that we know is too high in the brain of people with fibromyalgia or raising a neurotransmitter that's too low, all of those drugs work. They only work in about a third of the patients that have centralized pain because not everyone gets to this final common pathway in the same way. Some people get to this hyperexcitability state in their brain because their glutamate is too high. Some get there because their GABA is too low. Some get there because their serotonin and norepinephrine is too low. And they're going to respond to different classes of drugs based on how they got there, which is no different than treating hypertension or congestive heart failure or cancer, for that matter, is that there's a lot of underlying mechanisms that can cause a single disease. But that is really what we now think of as far as the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia, and I think we understand fibromyalgia a lot better than we understand neuropathic pain. And I love debating the people that study neuropathic pain about this because they hate this. They think they understand neuropathic pain because they know what's going on in the peripheral nerve. And I, when I say to them, you know, only less than 50% of people that have that nerve damage even have pain. Doesn't that bother you? Then it's like, <clears throat> I was going to use a political comment, but I, I better not. So. <clears throat> Uh, this is what makes females more likely to have any chronic pain condition. Women, on average, have a higher volume control setting for pain sensitivity and sensory sensitivity. I'm not a misogynist. I didn't cause this. This is just the way it is. Um, it turns out that if you're an actively menstruating female, sensory sensitivity and pain sensitivity actually even increases in the premenstrual phase of the cycle. So there's something about being a female that makes them, on average, to have a higher volume control setting or amplifier setting in their brain, and that's why... Osteoarthritis is, the, is a perfect example of this. Men and women in the United States have exactly the same incidence of radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis, but women feel that one and a half to two times more often than men. Women have, have more symptomatic osteoarthritis because more of the women are on the left side of the screen than the right side of that screen where I showed you the different radiographs and the different volume control settings. This kind of pain can be triggered by a number of different types of stressors. And so we do see comorbidities with 
um, a number of psychiatric disorders with PTSD and a number of things like this that we have to identify. Um, but this is really, the etiology of this is pretty well understood. The types of stress that can trigger this include everything from early life trauma to being deployed to war to having ma motor vehicle accidents, major surgical procedures, any major stressful event can trigger this type of pain in a subset of individuals that's probably sort of genetically primed. And then once they get this, we can see on quantitative sensory testing, functional neuroimaging, this augmented pain and sensory processing that I've been alluded to um, that's been shown over and over and over again. Um, a number of different, there's a lot of lectures um, this week. Uh, Rick Harris from our group is talking tomorrow on functional imaging. Um, but on functional imaging and what you can glean from functional imaging, but there's a fairly robust neural signature for these centralized pain states that seems to be present across the centralized pain states, regardless of whether the condition that the person is labeled with is fibromyalgia or whether they're an osteoarthritis patient with superimposed centralized pain. Another way of just showing this is what we really seem to be doing is putting people at different points in this bell-shaped curve of pain sensitivity or sensory sensitivity. The further you are to the right, in this bell-shaped curve, the more of what's going on out in the periphery that you feel. Um, it, it, it's pretty simple. Is it the higher your amplifier setting or the higher your gain setting, the more of what's going on out in your knee that, that, that your nerves in your knee are picking up, the more of that is allowed to go up to the brain to be felt as pain, whereas the people who are at the left side of this continuum hardly ever have any chronic pain. I mean, and you should, again, be aware that only one out of three people in the U.S. population has any type of chronic pain. Many, um, and I happen to be one of these lucky people, I've never had any chronic pain in my life, never had a headache in my life, ne but I'm not that unusual. Actually, two out of three people in the U.S. population don't have chronic pain, but these pain-prone people that, that have prominent CNS contributions to their pain, the, these, these conditions cluster in these individuals and these families because these are individuals that by nature, the way their CNS uh, processes pain, are going to be a lot more pain-sensitive. And again, um, a lot of objective evidence using functional MRI that the, there's an objective underpinning um, to these pain states. <coughs> this is the first fMRI study done in fibromyalgia. It was led by Rick Gracely in our group. This is a study that was done in 2002. Um, and it was really the first objective evidence of this increased volume control setting in fibromyalgia. All we really showed is that fibromyalgia patients' brain you know, on functional MRI, when they were getting a low-pressure stimulus, was the same as healthy controls getting a high-pressure stimulus. We could objectively see this increased volume control setting. These f findings have been replicated by our group and others scores of times over the last several years. And you see subsets of people with low back pain, with sickle cell disease, with all these other pain conditions have this exact same pattern on functional MRI, on functional connectivity, um, as was originally seen in fibromyalgia, which is why I sort of view fibromyalgia as the poster child for a CNS pain condition. Um, you actually even see structural changes in the brain um, in people that have these centralized pain states. Um, and I know uh, Charles is going to talk a little bit about small fiber neuropathy. Um, I actually don't believe that small fiber neuropathy plays any role in fibromyalgia, but we can talk about that. Um, and uh, what we think is that what you're seeing out in the periphery when you do a nerve biopsy and see quote unquote small fiber neuropathy, I don't even like that term, um, is you're just seeing functional and structural reorganization of the entire central nervous system in people that have chronic pain. This is how the, the nervous system responds. If something is hyperactive, it tries to do things to turn down the activity. And what better way to try 
to decrease pain if, you're, if someone's brain is being bombarded with pain is to shrink the, the nociceptive fields out in the periphery um, so they would theoretically experience less pain. But the, this finding of small fiber neuropathy has been found in so many different chronic pain states and non-chronic pain conditions that I think we have to very seriously con uh, question what it means. Now, I do believe that work like Frank Rice is doing that looks at the nerves and, looks and, and takes a biopsy <clears throat> and looks at the receptors that are expressed on the nerves and things like that, I think that may very well be informative in chronic pain states. But I don't think a plain old uh, small fiber biopsy, the way that it's typically done, is, really tells us anything about the underlying pathogenesis of chronic pain. Um, we do know that um, a lot of these mechanisms, one of the mechanisms that's gotten a lot of attention is that a lot of these people with centralized pain don't have enough descending analgesic activity coming down from their brain to the spinal cord, and thus um, there, a lot of the information is allowed to go up to the brain. We do know that there is this sensory hyper-responsiveness that the insula seems to be um, largely responsible for. The anterior and posterior insula play a really strong role in sensory processing of any sensory information throughout the body, and it really seems like high glutamate, low GABA in the insula leads the insula to be hyperactive and leads these individuals to think that lights are brighter, that, that, that somatic stimuli are more painful, but again, it's a brain problem rather than a peripheral problem. <clears throat> and then here are the neurotransmitters that seem to be driving this. The neurotransmitters on the left side of the screen, when they're present in high levels, turn up the volume control. The neurotransmitters on the right side of the screen turn down the volume control. The direction of those arrows are the direction of those neurotransmitter systems in people with fibromyalgia. Um, and what you see is high levels of a number of the neurotransmitters that um, increase the volume control, low levels of a number of the neurotransmitters that decrease the volume control. The only neurotransmitter system in fibromyalgia that is not what we would have hypothesized 20 years ago, high levels of the ones on the left, low levels of the ones on the right, is the endogenous opioid system in fibromyalgia is actually hyperactive. People with fibromyalgia have a lot of um, occupancy of their mu opioid receptors in the brain from the endogenous opioids that they're releasing. And this is probably why opioids don't work in centralized pain states, is that the, the, these individuals are already releasing a lot of endogenous opioids. Those endogenous opioids are binding to the mu receptors and the other opioid receptors. And then if you give that person an exogenous opioid, an opioid analgesic, there's not as many receptors for it to bind to, and thus you don't get as much activity. I just want to point out again that just because someone has fibromyalgia, you, don't, you can't stop looking for ongoing nociceptive input. This was a nice study out of Italy suggesting that in people with fibromyalgia with comorbid osteoarthritis or comorbid myofascial pain that you could actually make their fibromyalgia better by treating the peripheral problem more aggressively. Um, so again, this notion that all the treatment of all fibromyalgia patients is directed to the CNS um, is old school. And then, uh, again, I also want to emphasize that there seems to be two forms of fibromyalgia or centralized pain. The top-down form, which are the individuals that start out in childhood having growing pains, functional abdominal pain, headaches, um, painful menstrual periods, and then throughout their life their pain moves to areas, different areas of their body, and then it finally becomes so widespread that at age 30 or 35 or 40 they're labeled as having fibromyalgia. I think that's a primary CNS disease, whereas the bottom-up form um, is in people with rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, where there is some ongoing nociceptive input that might be driving the CNS process, and you have to treat both the CNS process and the nociceptive input to make those people 
better when they have more of the bottom-up form of central sensitization. Um, this is a study that we did just showing how robust some of these measures um, are in fibromyalgia. Just go through this study very quickly. I'd highly recommend that you read this study um, if you're interested in the neurobiology of fibromyalgia. This was a study looking at how pregabalin was working in fibromyalgia. It was a crossover study that we did. And our hypothesis was that pregabalin was working by reducing glutamatergic activity in the insula and that the people that had the highest levels of glutamate in their insula would be the people that would be most likely to respond to pregabalin. That's exactly what we showed. <clears throat> we showed, in fact, that, that in this trial, the only people that responded to pregabalin that were people that had high baseline levels of glutamate in their insula, the people that had normal levels of glutamate in their insula, even though their glutamate levels went down fairly dramatically when they got pregabalin, those people didn't clinically get any better. The only people that clinically got better when we gave them pregabalin were the five or six people that started out with the highest levels of glutamate in their insula. Again, this is why these centrally acting analgesics only work well in a third or 40% of the people that we give them to, because I can't tell when I see someone with fibromyalgia who whose fibromyalgia is driven by glutamate being too high, whose fibromyalgia is driven by GABA being too low, by norepinephrine serotonin being too low. There's a lot of different ways you can get to this final common pathway, and we don't really have the tools yet to f figure out, other than trying different classes of drug, who's who. But what we found in the study is that all of these neuroimaging findings, the increased connectivity, the glutamate levels, the fMRI things, all got better in the fibromyalgia patients that, that received pregabalin and had improvements in their pain, whereas the people who received pregabalin didn't have those improvements, didn't have any changes in those different parameters. So these are the classes of drugs that work best in centralized pain states. Starting at the bottom, the first thing you note is that opioids and NSAIDs don't seem to work at all in purely centralized pain states like fibromyalgia. Um, and certainly the, the drugs that have the highest levels of evidence would be the tricyclics, the serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors, and the alpha-2-delta ligands or gabapentinoids. Um, I also think that cannabinoids can be effective in this, um, in centralized pain. And in fact, I think it'd be a way better idea to give someone with centralized pain a cannabinoid than an opioid with respect to both the efficacy and the safety um, of these drugs. Low-dose naltrexone is a cool uh, niche treatment for people with fibromyalgia, suggesting that maybe um, there's too much opioid activity in people with conditions like fibromyalgia. And instead of giving them opioids, we should actually be trying to antagonize the endogenous opioid system. Um, gamma hydroxybutyrate worked well in fibromyalgia. So we have a fair number of classes of drugs that you can give in centralized pain states. But again, they're not all going to work in everyone that has these conditions. And going back to what I was saying earlier about um, how none of the trials have failed, all of the treatments that we know work in fibromyalgia match up with one of these neurotransmitter systems that we know to be awry in people with fibromyalgia. So that's why, again, when someone says we don't understand the pathogenesis of fibromyalgia, to me it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's everything that we would have predicted would work in fibromyalgia has worked in appropriately powered trials. If we go back to osteoarthritis of the knee, the, the old school view of osteoarthritis of the knee has been replaced by the, the new view that some people with OA of the knee have prominent CNS contributions to their pain. There's a lot of uh, studies showing that. But a watershed moment in the pain field was or were the trials that Lilly did showing that duloxetine worked in osteoarthritis of the knee. That was really the best evidence that in a subset of people with OA um, that there is a prominent CNS component that can be treated. And by the way, 
the, the drugs that were originally developed as antidepressants, whether they're tricyclics or SNRIs, um, they, it doesn't matter at all whether someone is depressed or not. An osteoarthritis patient, a low back pain patient, a fibromyalgia patient with depression is not any more likely to respond to a tricyclic or an SNRI than someone without depression. So don't really think of these drugs as being antidepressants that are working by making depression better and thus making pain better. They're working on the neurotransmitters that are playing a role in both depression and in pain, but these are not the same disease by any means. Neurobiologically, these conditions look quite different. And then finally, just show you um, how important some of these fibromyalgia measures. These are studies led by Chad Brummett, who's an anesthesiologist um, in our group that um, has done a lot of perioperative studies looking at how powerful this fibromyalgia measure is. Um, the data I'm going to show you are for knee and hip arthroplasty patients. These are large cohorts of six to 700 people that either got knee replacement surgery or hip replacement surgery. We, we published a series of manuscripts. But that fibromyalgia measure that I showed you earlier, it, it can be scored from 0 to 31. 0 to 19 comes from how many X's people have on a body map, how widespread the pain is. And then the other 12 points comes from a 0 to 3 measure of fatigue, a 0 to 3 measure of sleep, and a 0 to sleep, uh, 3 measure of memory problems. And you can add that up to get up to 31. For each one-point increase in that fibromyalgia scale in people getting knee and hip replacement surgery, people needed 9 milligrams more of oral morphine equivalents during the acute hospitalization. They were 20 to 25% less likely to respond to knee or hip replacement surgery. And, the, and again, I'll reiterate, these phenomena were linear, starting at a score of zero and going all the way up to a score of 31. They didn't in any way start at the level of 13, where we say that is, person has fibromyalgia once they reach a score on that measure of having 13. So I would really highly encourage, um, in the case that I was going to present, um, that I will present, um, I just want to very briefly allude to how important these non-pharmacologic therapies are in treating centralized pain th states. Um, education, aerobic exercise, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, again, there's a lot of lectures on these things. We have a free resource available to patients, fibroguide.com. It gives people web-based CBT. We actually did a trial, uh, RCT of this um, versus uh, a control group. And this, the effect size of this website uh, using non-pharmacologic therapies for fibromyalgia was about the same as the drugs that are approved for fibromyalgia. I'm not suggesting you use the website alone, but I'm highly suggesting that you use drug and non-drug therapies together when you treat people with these centralized pain conditions. Um, uh, exercise, again, is heavily used in fibromyalgia and should be more broadly used in chronic pain. I think some of the neurostimulatory therapies that are targeting the CNS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, uh, some of the other therapies uh, that maybe can get deeper into the brain are going to turn out to be promising therapies um, in these central conditions. Very quickly, random issues. The vitamin D trials have been all over the map. Some have suggested that vitamin D supplementation helps central pain. Some suggest it doesn't. I, don't, I, don't, I give vitamin D to all my patients that have low vitamin D, which is almost all chronic pain patients. Um, there is a, some emerging data that central obesity can be partly driving the, the systemic or centralized pain response. People that have a, a lot of central obesity, the, um, the cytokines that are released by adipose tissue might be um, in some individuals leading to sort of a mild pro-inflammatory state that drives this. Um, Charles and I will talk about small fiber neuropathy, I hope, 
Um, and opioids are a really, really, really bad idea in people with centralized pain states. A lot of evidence now that not just that these individuals don't respond well to opioids, but these are the highest people at highest risk. When you give them an opioid for acute pain of continuing to want to use it for their fibromyalgia pain, um, and, and the biggest risk factors after major surgical procedures for people still using that opioid that they were originally prescribed for acute pain at six months after are how widespread someone's pain is and whether they had comorbid depression. Um, so although REMS programs screen for addictive features and say these are the people we should be worried about giving opioids to, I think we should also be worried about giving opioids to people with depression and people with more widespread pain because I think these are other individuals that are at high risk of, of staying on the opioid and then being harmed by the opioid um, over long periods of time. So I will stop there um, and then Charles will talk um, and then we'll take questions at the end. Thank you. I, I, I give signers hand cramps, you know, the poor, poor people that have to do like the, they have to have two of them just so that they can rotate, yeah, so. Okay, that better? So the things that I have said so far is I have never sp had the pleasure of speaking with someone who speaks faster than I do. Um, and you're not even a New Yorker, but are you? No, I'm a Michigander. Yeah, right. So who would have thought that, you know? Usually very bland, obviously not. Okay, that's great. Uh, <laughs> um, but I don't really want to have a debate. I'd like to have a more of a discussion. I'd like to know what your thoughts are, and we'd like to maybe respond to you at the end of my s session. Um, with our different, different approaches. But I don't think, for those of you who were at the session yesterday, Why Skin Matters, um, there was abundant evidence that was, that was presented about what's wrong way in the periphery, uh, way at the level of your keratinocytes, your skin cells. And I think it would be premature with our state of knowledge to say that we know the whole story, because I don't think we do. I unbelievably respect Dan's hypotheses and all the amazing work that's been done. Um, and I think that includes uh, the work that was done in creating this kind of uh, characterization of pain. But I don't think we know the whole story yet. Um, I think this is yours. Yeah, it's, I, the, there you are. You want to do your primary? Do your primary. Do your primary. No, do your primary. You did this already? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm positive. You sure? I just went ahead. Okay. I've never spoken with anybody who didn't finish his slides before telling <laughs> that's a that's a real problem. Anyway, anyway, okay. See, but... <laughs> I'd like to be these first for you, Charles. <laughs> okay, there we go. So these are my disclosures. This is what we're going to do. So there, there we go, okay? So we've 
been through this already, but this is um, important. So neuropathic pain, I'd like to look at other ways in which sensory am- amplification can occur. And for those of you who are familiar with the way the nervous system is designed, and I know that you are, um, there's abs- oh, very little information that we have that suggests that when somebody experiences, says, I have pain here, there are at least 10, 15, 20 ways of that person, different areas of the brain, central nervous system, other portions of the central nervous system, and periphery, where that can happen. And so I think it's a little bit an act of hubris for us to say, oh, we know it's always centralized, or we know that it's always peripheral, or we don't know that it's a mixture of both, or we know that it's... You even said that um, we don't know who, when we treat somebody with fibromyalgia with pregabalin, we don't know who may respond based upon your your, um, metabolic imaging studies, because we don't know who is primarily, for whom that's primarily driven by glutamate. So this is humbling. Anyone who does pain management should be humbled by how little we know about, I would suggest that we be humbled, by how little we know exactly by exactly what causes pain. So neuropathic pain is associated with sensory amplification. Um, and I would, uh, we'll come back to that point in a second. And the way we define neuropathic pain is pain arising as a direct consequence of diseases affecting the, sen- the somatosensory system. And we graded it. We graded this as research grading. We graded it as definite, probable, or possible. And when we talk about neuropathic pain as being a cause of chronic of, of widespread pain or sensory amplification, it's pain that results from nerve disorder, spinal cord disorder, or brain disorder, not originating from the bone itself. Now that's a really dicey thing to say, right? Because every bone, every muscle, every body part has sensory innervation. So it, it's not really. And this is the worldwide agreed-upon research definition for neuropathic pain, but I hope you would agree it's a funny definition because it it's not accurate anatomically. Every structure in our body has sensory innervation. These are, this is a differential diagnosis of conditions that, cause, that are associated with widespread pain or sensory amplification. So, you know, osteoarthritis, polymyalgia rheumatica, osteomalacia, myopathy, you, you, know, you know the connective tissue disorders, the autoimmune disorders, you've spoken about fibromyalgia. I can't tell you how many people have come to, I, I direct a, a, a tertiary care pain center, I do both interventional and non-interventional work. Um, I, uh, um, the point is, but I'm a neurologist by training, so very often, um, first step that I'll take, and I'm sure you would do it as well, is maybe reevaluate what a diagnosis is. I can't tell you how many people have been referred to me with a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, been treated for years, have examinations that suggest abnormalities of spinal cord function, and wind up having, let's say, cervical osteophytes pressing on their spinal cord that may have been present for years already, or in other instances, um, people who've been told they have fibromyalgia, been treated for fibromyalgia, maybe even responded to some of the medicines that you talked about, but had MS because they were never investigated. And there, we can go down. So these, this is something, not that whatever was just said by Dan is not really important, and I'm, but I think there's more to the story, or there's, a, there's an additional story that we shouldn't keep we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget, which is having the right diagnosis, WNL, if we never looked, or, we, or within normal limits. And we want to make sure we have the right diagnosis. Syringomyelia is not an uncommon finding if you look. 
Um, MS, I mentioned, carrying malformations, which go along with syringomyelia, um, other spinal-related conditions. Um, we come back, we, it's interesting to discuss small fiber neuropathy in more detail. Um, metabolic disorders, diabetes, undiagnosed diabetes. Just this week, um, I, I have taken care of somebody with hemifacial spasm, successfully treated with Botox, botulinum toxin, sorry, um, for years. Um, she developed more and more chronic widespread pain, was told by her internist she had fibromyalgia, never was sent for laboratory testing. I saw, she asked me for a second opinion. I did. Her hemoglobin A1C is 7. She's 70 years old. No one ever looked. You know. So maybe there's another reason for her. So there are, are a number of reasons why people have um, fibromyalgia, um, uh, chronic widespread pain. Chronic widespread pain is pre highly prevalent. This is work done uh, in a study by a uh, publication by the British Pain Society, in which basically um, the bottom line here is that diagnosis is very important to be to be made as specifically as possible. That means not just looking at a checklist, and I know you didn't say that at all, but no, no checklist of pharma. Take the time to evaluate somebody for all causes. Would you agree that if someone meets the criteria for fibromyalgia or has fibromyalgia-ness, um, it doesn't mean they have fibromyalgia? Absolutely. No, it, it actually doesn't mean they have fibromyalgia. It doesn't mean they don't have something. I knew you were going to say that after yeah, I yeah. asked you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually, usually they do have, they do, usually they do have a, a component of centralized pain, but it doesn't in any way mean that they don't have something else you need to identify and treat. Which, I'll, which, which yeah. is fine, right? Yeah. So it's really, but, but if we all agree with the proverb, treat the treatable, that other condition right. may be treated differently than fibromyalgia, and it's important to recognize all conditions that can be treated. And I think we can do, we, we want to avoid being sloppy in not looking at the whole picture. I don't think anybody would want that for their patients. And this, interestingly, because Dan Ray made this point, that interesting that, that, that these published guidelines uh, or suggestions um, from the British Pain Society strongly urge people not to use opiates in people who have fibromyalgia. So basic neuropathic pain concepts when it comes to kind of, you know, uh, as a cause of, of, of a nervous, the nervous system gone crazy or, 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 or chronic um, widespread pain is that the pain in neuropathic pain is caused by a nervous system that's gone awry. It's, the electrical activity is not um, normal. Most nerve damage does not lead to ongoing pain. So that was already stated. I don't have any, no, no one would disagree with that. Um, the severity of the damage does not correlate with the severity of pain. No test tells us if a person has pain or how bad it is. Not everybody who has abnormalities on skin biopsies has as severe pain as others, for example. And the entire nervous system can be involved in this process. And so um, that's important to recognize as well. It, what's also really important is that people who do experience chronic widespread pain or neuropathic pain when as a cause of chronic widespread pain, have a significant burden of illness um, to, to consider. Uh, they have poor sleep, poor function. There are multiple studies that have shown that. And that's another reason why uh, we need to be as comprehensive as possible in looking at the, the, the incidence of, of, of other disorders in people who are, like, who are often labeled as having quote-unquote fibromyalgia. And these, these are just studies to show how often the quality of life is severely impacted in people with um, chronic widespread pain and neuropathic pain. Neuroplasticity is something that we're not, I'm not going to go into that more in more detail, but as a concept, 
um, neuroplasticity. Anyone ever see somebody with, with spasticity following a stroke? Have you ever seen somebody who seemed to have the same degree of deficit after the stroke but winds up normal, normal or close to normal afterwards as well? Can you tell from an MRI finding the lead, you know, can you tell from an MRI, um, just like from an x-ray that you showed at the beginning, and I'm sorry I don't have MRI as a brain to make this point in stroke patients, but can you tell from, if, if you took 100 MRIs of people with lacunar infarcts in the internal capsule and hemiparesis um, contralateral to their, to, their, to their brain abnormalities, could you tell who would have spasticity and who wouldn't based upon the lesion? Absolutely not. No. So we face this conundrum no matter what we do, no matter what condition we take care of that affects the nervous system. And so neuroplasticity involves the capacity of neurons to change their function, chemical profile, or structure, and there are different types of neuroplasticity that that occur. And the take-home message here is that neuroplasticity can be your friend or it can work against you. And it's possible that with different people in different conditions, different genetic structures, different underlying other conditions. Um, People may have neuroplasticity that promotes exaggeration and enhancement of function as opposed to what you'd like to be seen, which is normalization of function. And so the role of neuroplasticity in pain is based upon understanding that neuronal structure can change when the nervous system is injured, that connections between neurons, you think, oh, the nervous system should know that if it's injured or if it's experienced trauma, emotional trauma or other trauma, it should rewire itself in a perfectly normal way. It doesn't always do that. Anybody know what the syndrome of crocodile tears is? So you know that if you have a facial nerve lesion around the mastoid process, there are people, sometimes it can be tumor, it can be infection, it can be other reasons, um, lacrimation and taste are subserved by the facial nerve. An injury to the facial nerve before the fibers take off to the, go to their respective targets, such as a tumor or um, other, other structural abnormalities or other, other conditions, can result in rewiring in such a way that when somebody, cry, when somebody eats, they cry. Because in the rewiring, in the aberrant rewiring, in the neuroplasticity gone bad, now the facial nerve no longer has the same, self, same subtle control that it did for a variety of central and peripheral reasons. And when people eat, since taste is subserved, by the, two-thirds of the, front, your, your, the front two-thirds of your to- tongue is subserved by the facial nerve, taste-wise. So when, when a crocodile, um, it's called a syndrome of crocodile tears because when crocodiles eat, they cry. So now human beings, when they eat in that setting, they cry. So this is not just a sensory thing. This is the way that the nervous system is designed. So that's why I'm hesitating. And that's not a central event only. That reorganization is occurring peripherally. And so I don't think it's fair to say in conditions in which there are nerve injury or nerve abnormalities that it's all central, it's all peripheral, and it's probably wiser overall to think of it not as that, 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 that it's best to try to identify where within the neuropathways neuro you can identify problems. And if you can, for example, in your study of identifying that glutamate-generated fibromyalgia-associated fibromyalgia patients have a better response to pregabalin, that's the way to go. We, you weren't here yesterday, I know, but Frank, Phil, and I um, have participated in a study in which we were able to now predict 
using keratinocyte neurochemistry findings with 80% likelihood who's going to respond to a topical lidocaine patch for painful diabetic neuropathy. And again, that, that's and why I said what I said. Is that I think what did you say? I forgot what you said already. I said that the, <laughs> that the studies like the ones that Frank is doing may very well be very helpful because I think that what you get on that biopsy is a readout of what's going on in the entire nervous system, not just the peripheral nervous system. So I don't have any problem with that. What I have a problem with is the morphologic finding of small fiber neuropathy, meaning anything. And I agree with you 100%. Right. No, I do. Because how many, um, Frank and Phil in the audience, but how many hours have, have I, I can tell you, I spent many hours discussing how the absence of fibers themselves does not explain the clinical phenotype. So there's a bigger, and that's all I'm saying as well. But I'm not, all I'm asking as well is that we think about it not only in the central nervous system either. And so this is a really interesting study I alluded to yesterday um, at, at, at a different session, but I didn't show this slide. Um, this was done, work done in Scandinavia, and you kind of alluded this, to this as well. Um, people, to take, ima imagine somebody with, to show you how complex this is. For years, people have thought, and Dan is a rheumatologist, so I'm not stepping on your toes purposely in any way, but people have thought of osteoarthritis. My rheumatology colleagues in my area still treat um, osteoarthritis as if it's, you know, anti-inflammatories only, and and it's an inflammatory condition. We all know that anti-inflammatories don't work very well for many people, especially with chronic osteoarthritis. So in this study that was done in Scandinavia, a group of, if this side of the room had uh, osteoarthritis of the right knee and this side of the room had two perfectly normal knees, um, you'd expect the affected osteoarthritic knee on the right that may be painful to be more sensitive to painful stimuli, to have a lower pain threshold, to be more sensitized, right, compared to them. But what about your left knee? Would your left knee be like, if this is a, right, you have osteoarthritis in the knee, you don't have osteoarthritis anywhere else in the body, let's say. What about the threshold in your left knee, which is structurally looks like that normal knee that you showed earlier and doesn't have any um, known arthritis, and doesn't have pain at rest? Should it be, should you have the same threshold as the left side, the, my left side of the room here? Well, no. It's actually you have a lower pain threshold even in unaffected knee. So that actually points to some element of centralization. The, these studies were cited on my slide. I think you were working on your phone when I was. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to take care of my patients back home. Sorry about that. That's true too. But either way. So um, I think mechanism to, to, it's, there are multiple mechanisms. These are just take-home messages. Multiple mechanisms, even for the same diagnosis. Uh, there are peripheral spinal cord, brainstem, subcortical, cortical mechanisms. There are many different mediators that are involved in this process. There are many different um, um, ionic channels that are involved in this process. Um, you mentioned the role of excitatory uh, amino acids, um, like glutamate, substance P, um, nerve growth factor, the, uh, as, as other agents as well. Um, there's immune system activation. There's a whole idea of conditioned pain modulation, which I don't, or, which I don't think you talked about, um, but is an endogenous mediated way of uh, um, when, when we are in pain, um, there are endogenous mechanisms that help us to naturally um, have less pain um, after the painful event. Well, people with fibromyalgia are, are deficient in that uh, mechanism, and that's an endogenous opioid-mediated event. And so that's further evidence that 
of the opioid, the endogenous opioid system in people with chronic widespread pain, and specifically fibromyalgia, may not activate this system appropriately. And that may be something to look at well going forward. But no treatments yet are available based upon a mechanism model only. Um, and so I, these different mechanisms, um, we embarked on some of our studies that we talked about yesterday to try to find out specific mechanisms, specific people. But I don't want people to think, please, that everyone has centralized pain caused by central nervous system activation only. I don't think that's a fair way of looking at this. Um, so given that there are different neuropathic pain states that, call, that are associated with, with, with significant pain, these are some of the diagnoses that um, are, are, are associated with neuropathic phenomena. And you can see I've highlighted small fiber neuropathy. Um, what we know about small fiber neuropathy um, in terms of pathophysiology is uh, that the, there's a possible role of sodium channel mutations uh, with genetic variants in the role of sodium channels uh, leading either to a loss of pain sensation or a gain in, sen in pain sensation. And so there's an inactivating mutation in a specific gene in the sodium channel, which encodes a sodium channel, the NAV 1.7, um, which can actually be associated with congenital insensitivity to pain. And there's also a different genetic mutation that can occur in which people have a gain of function because of a different abnormality in that gene, but still basically an effect on the same on the similar sodium channel. But here the function is gained. So have, have you done any work in that, looking at people with chronic widespread pain in your group and any genetic sodium channel mutations? No, we really focus primarily central. in fibromyalgia on central factors. That's what our group is well Right, right, right. And, yeah. I just, but I just, but, but I guess, all right, so I, we, we, don't, we don't know, but if someone, but the reason why I asked that, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot, although I realize I did, is that if, if somebody, if, if someone could phenotypically develop fibromyalgia, um, appear to have all the centralized components, but the major problem may be peripheral sodium channel processing to begin with. And you wouldn't, we, wouldn't, we would not know that unless we tested for these things. Because you gave an example of the guitar. How do you know if the guitar string is the problem and it's just being amplified by the amplifier as well? How do you know that the, the issue isn't peripheral that's being further amplified, resulting in an experience in the brain that's amplified? You have to add them together. You have to add what's going on in the periphery plus how the CNS is modulating that. Right, right, because I'd be 100% I'd be wrong if I talked about this being peripheral only because it's only one central processing unit of your body, and that's the brain. So no matter what's happening in another part of your body, the brain has to be involved. So I am being wishy-washy because it's a wishy-washy kind of subject because the CPU, the central processing unit of the system, is the brain. So it can't just be small fiber, keratinocytic, abnormalities, it has to be a combination of the two. But it's not, it, it's not likely one or the other. And there are various other mutations that have in sodium channels and in other systems that also may lead to small fiber neuropathy and pain. Um, um, there are significant diagnostic study limitations. Um, we don't routinely do functional MRI studies to diagnose fibromyalgia, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, people often are um, uh, not even evaluated by routine blood tests um, before they're told that they, they're just told they have fibromyalgia. Um, they aren't evaluated for other treatable conditions. Uh, MRI, CT, and X-rays, as has already been stated, I just want to emphasize my two cents here, are often very insensitive. Many 
they don't really give you that much information about um, the, the, the complaint. They may evaluate for specific breaks or other structural abnormalities. But how many people, how many people are aware of the MRI study that have been reported in multiple journals, people who, I'm in my 50s, I don't have any low back pain, I don't, I've never had a real painful problem either, um, but in my age group, um, given that I'm active and I run every day, um, people in my age group without back pain have an over 50% likelihood of having significant abnormalities on MRIs of their lower back, but they have no pain. Does that mean that a patient who came in to see you last week uh, with low back pain and had a normal MRI doesn't have the pain? or might there be other explanations? And that point's been made with x-rays, that point's been made with CT, that point's been made with MRI. Uh, 35 or so million people in this country have migraine headache, and the overwhelming majority of those individuals have normal structural um, brain MRIs, normal, normal, normal MRIs of the brain. Um, EMG and nerve conduction velocity assessment are also notoriously, it depends how you use the tool, um, when if someone, if a person is told that there's nothing wrong with them because they have, they have all this widespread pain, they have, they have uh, terrible com complaints, but their EMG or nerve conduction velocity assessment is normal. What does that mean? It means that you've tested large nerve fibers. They don't have any, they, they may, may have something to do with modifying, uh, modulating pain. They have touch sensation maybe associated with them, other functions, but they, they have nothing to do with pain. Those aren't the subtypes of, of fibers that have anything to do with pain. And so that's a problem when patients are told and people are told, there must, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. That's where small fiber testing started to become um, um, more important. Not necessarily to say all of the pain is in your periphery, but it's more important to start looking at other areas of the, of the body that may be part of the process leading to your painful condition and other pain. Um, skin biopsy, quantitative sensory testing, we use all the time because it can be a more um, quantitative way of measuring sensory thresholds. We use it in all of our studies, and we happen to have the machine, um, multiple machines, um, and we use it all the time. I know it's not a routine bedside tool, although we did and we have published um, um, in a different group um, how bedside quantitative sensory can be done with simple tools in six minutes or less. Uh, it's a separate issue if you want to talk about it. Skin biopsy for people who are trying to est establish where within the neuraxis problems might be, is that a fair way of saying that? Mm -hmm. um, has become important to help understand if the periphery, if, 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 the, if there are findings consistent with a small fiber neuropathic process. Um, the reason for doing that, again, is to be able to aid in the assessment, potentially see a, a, a targeted treatment approaches and to help the patient understand the entire process. Um, skin biopsy assessment has become widely accepted as a way to evaluate people. There are, um, I will allude to in just a few minutes, multiple studies that have now been shown, world, more than just U.S. studies, ex-U.S. studies as well, that have demonstrated skin biopsy findings that are abnormal in people who have been told and who meet the 2010 ACR criteria for fibromyalgia, for example. Um, the standard, so if anyone was at this, the program yesterday on why skin matters, when we talked about skin biopsies in our fibromyalgia study, and I, if you weren't there, I don't mean to bore you, we biopsied the hypothenar eminence and a, a, a typical tender point. 
We didn't find anything of, of great interest in the tender point. There were reasons for that, which I won't elaborate today. But the abnormalities that Dr. Rice presented yesterday were from the hypothenar biopsies. We didn't do, that's not what we do typically when we're making the diagnosis of small fiber neuropathy, but I just wanted to be clear about that. When we do uh, um, skin biopsies for, for small fiber neuropathy, the typical areas that are used are the calf and two locations in the thigh. Many labs that do this procedure now can do upper extremity testing as well. What I'll tell you is that you don't need to do the, the area that's in pain because the, the findings are going to be widespread. Okay? And what you're looking, what you see is a reduction in intraepidermal nerve fiber density compared to normal. So your typical hospital lab can't do this unless they have normal data for those sites. Um, so that's why specialized labs are, are done. They're not only commercial labs. University of Rochester, University of Minnesota, Mass General. I don't know if University of Michigan has a commercial lab. Um, we don't um, at Albany Med, but there are a number of, 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 of uh, uh, academic centers that also do this. This is something that was alluded to yesterday as well, that even in conditions, documented neuro conditions like post-hepatic neuralgia, um, there's a loss of, of intraepidermal nerve fiber seen. It doesn't ex mean that everyone always has the more pain or less pain based upon the density. So you really think think that the nervous system is being sensitized when you see somebody with chronic widespread pain because people think that people complain of burning, tingling, all these kind of uh, uh, complaints that, um, that, that are different than people who say, I overdid it yesterday while doing roofing or mowing the lawn and I feel pain for a couple of days and I feel better. Um, take a pain history. Um, do they have headache, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic pelvic pain? Chronic pelvic pain. How many people of you take care of people with chronic pelvic pain? Um, they're extraordinarily difficult to take care of when they have irritable bowel. They have other com conditions. And uh, we have a, a, a pelvic health program at Albany Med that's designed to try to be as multidisciplinary as possible. We have now studied, I think, 20 consecutive female and also a couple of males, uh, individuals with chronic pelvic pain who did not, who may have had a clear diagnosis, some have had endometriosis, um, some have been operated on multiple times. Every single one of them has had skin biopsy findings consistent with a small fiber neuropathic process. Every single one of them. So we're in the process of writing that up. We just learned in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which you mentioned was right in the middle um, on, on your um, central peripheral uh, slide. Um, we were about to write up and submit. Um, we had several patients within our group um, that had small fiber neuropathy changes on their skin biopsies consistent with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, including a primary care physician who has had not been able to get rid of his headaches for 20 years. He's a functioning parent. He's a normal human being, lives with his wife, has a fun normal life otherwise, but has failed to respond to multiple treatments. Um, it was, has been diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And so we had three patients. We figured it's time to write this up. And an Italian group just published the how highly prevalent small fiber neuropathy is in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome in the Green Journal Neurology, which is the best neurology journal, um, within the last three weeks. So, I mean, it happens. But I'm telling the story out of interest and also because we made this observation. That's how things get changed. And others have made it as well. Um, it's important to please, 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 when evaluating people with widespread pain, we, the, 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 it's so important to actually examine people and to note 
what there's you know, not just no general examination, but also a neurological examination. Very often, um, a person will have severe pain in the absence of, of loss of sensory debt without the sensory deficits. Um, but very often, so we, you have, we, but when you have widespread complaints and neuropathic phenomena, you might have negative symptoms such as loss of sensation, loss of temperature. You might have, and you can use various tools to do that. You might have positive findings such as pain when there shouldn't be pain, allodynia, hyperesthesia, uh, spontaneous pain, abnormal summation of pain. These are things that you can do easily. There are, it's important also to use diagnostic tests as tools, not as a means of getting people out of your office. And I hate to be blunt like that, but it's all often people will test, 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 and say, I'm sorry, there's nothing wrong with you. That's not the way to interpret tests. An abnormal test can occur in someone, people can have neuropathies that are not painful. We studied in our diabetic neuropathy study that we mentioned yesterday, a whole cohort of people who had diabetic neuropathy without pain. That occurs. But in the same time, a normal test does not mean that a per, an abnormal test, a normal test does not mean that someone doesn't have pain. So it's much broader, and that point has been made by both of us. Um, here is some other additional information about looking. Um, this is, uh, the, these, these are um, published reports. So this is a, a, the, the author of this report, the, 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 the lead author of this report, senior author is Dr. Rizzo. At the time that this report was published in 2007 in Pain, which is the premier international pain journal. Um, um, this was, he was on the faculty at Yale, directing their multiple sclerosis center. He's now in the pharmaceutical industry developing neuropathic pain treatments. But this is a survey, went out to over 10,000 MS patients. Um, almost 8,000 responded, and um, a, over 60% of people who responded had significant chronic widespread pain associated with their MS. Um, this was ne not been documented. It's amazing how, any neurologists in the audience, besides me, how my neurology colleagues love to take care of the MS patients with different immunomodulators and, and you know, interferons and um, all, Tysabri and all the things that are available, but they overlook, they don't want to take care of their pain, which is highly prevalent in people with MS. So why does that certainly could be associated with central nervous system disorder. However, I would be interested, and I was talking to somebody today at breakfast, I, I'd be interested in knowing whether or not patients with MS also have abnormal wiring peripherally in a way that has never been looked at before. I wouldn't say they have demyelination, um, but they may have absence of regulatory fibers, maybe because of what you brought up, Dan, that it's a trophic change of sort. Um, because Tony Yox, Tony Yox is a neuroscientist in, in San Diego, and he's done rat studies where he's lesion frontal lobes of rats and found peripheral changes. So it's not inconceivable based upon well, animal studies. We've done the same thing yeah. by increasing glutamate in the rat's brain. We can cause yeah, yeah. the exact same changes right, of, right, uh, that are right, called small fiber. Right. So it's really a two-way street. I, I, I would argue that it's a two-way street, and it's not only top-down. So, but we may just differ there. All right, so here are three, three yes. Fascinating. Uh, 
Am I familiar with that? So all of, all, all of those changes you know, that I alluded to, and now I'm talking about the central nervous system, but all the changes of, of decrease in brain size of different brain regions, they rapidly change with, with both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies. So they used to be, people used to use the term neurodegeneration and say, oh, chronic pain's a neurodegenerative disease, and this means that this is bad and irreversible. But now what we're realizing is that even in that pregabalin study, that the the, the voxel-based morphometry findings were not published as part of the same manuscript, but just a couple of weeks of pregabalin administration in these fibromyalgia patients changed brain size and shape. And so it happens very rapidly with a lot of CNS-acting drugs. And again, there's no reason to expect that, that wouldn't likewise be happening out in the periphery. But I still emphasize there are many ways of achieving the same outcome. Right. So, so just a couple of things to think about. Um, in 27, this is Anne-Louise Oaklander's um, work, 27 patients uh, with fibromyalgia who met the 2010 ACR criteria uh, were compared to 30 matched controls. 41% of the skin biopsies from the fibromyalgia subjects compared to 3% from the controls uh, were diagnostic for small fiber neuropathy. Just one line of evidence. Whatever that means, we can discuss it, ask questions about it, but that's what this study showed. In a separate study that was published by Claudia Summer, she's a senior author on this paper from Germany. Um, this was an even more elaborate study in which 25 patients with fibromyalgia were compared to 10 depressed patients and controls. The take-home message here is that um, skin biopsy fi fi findings um, in the fibromyalgia patients um, were reduced in patients with fibromyalgia compared with controls. Um, and so, um, and they weren't seen in depressed patients without chronic pain nor control patients. So their conclusion was that this meant that fibromyalgia had neuropathic features. Um, Dr. Oaklander's conclusions have been more that fibromyalgia and small fibromyalgia, that, that fibromyalgia may be being misdiagnosed sometimes when it may be really a condition more, more likely to be small fibroneuropathy. There are different ways to interpret those findings. And, um, Two neurologists, David Saperstein and Todd Levine, who practice in Phoenix and also are um, involved in development of a commercial laboratory that processes skin biopsies. One of their wives is a dermatopathologist. Um, presented at the American College of Rheumatology meeting in 2012, 56 patients who also met the 2010 ACR criteria for fibromyalgia. They underwent skin bunch biopsies at both proximal and lower extremity sites. These are typical sites. And 61% of those individuals had findings consistent with small fiber neuropathy. So well, I'll be done in a second. We can go into questions. Now, what about um, chronic widespread pain and people? We didn't even talk about this yet. But what about the role of opioids in actually creating pain themselves? Um, and Norm Harden is going to be giving a talk on opioid-induced hyperalgesia. The actual evidence in favor of opioids facilitating pain, because there are complex reasons why and interactions with pain and pain-relieving symptoms, pain-causing and pain-relieving um, systems, endogenous systems that could explain why, at least they do in animals, why an administration of an opioid can actually lower pain threshold. This has been well demonstrated in certain animal studies. 
that kind of problem? Have you ever noticed in taking care of somebody on an opioid that their dose requirements increase over time? And there's not necessarily new disease? And so the concern of the FDA, the concern, the concern maybe of, of all of us, is is there another mechanism? And so the idea of opioids themselves inducing a hyperalgesic state, which people have been referred to with fibromyalgia, when what they had was opi- opioid-related increased pain. I don't know if you've ever seen that as well. And the best thing that I can do for somebody then is take them off their, op- at least trial them off of their opioids. But nobody knows for sure. There aren't really any well-done studies. There are small studies, but no large-scale study has ever been completed of a significant quality to address how often this really occurs. So the FDA mandated to the manufacturers of all the extended-release long-acting opioids to pay and create, in other words, fund and create a study that the FDA found acceptable to address this issue. And that study is just started. It's ongoing. Um, it's a study that I and uh, Nat Katz, who's a, a clinical trial specialist, um, defended before the FDA. And it involves basically a randomized withdrawal study in which people who are at a certain dose of opioids, one group doing well, same group in terms of dosing who's not doing well, are going to each be randomly withdrawn from opioids with very complex measurements of quantitative, quantitative sensory testing, We've employed um, um, uh, uh, testing of uh, HPA access. We, we work with a neuroendocrinologist to develop um, a battery of tests for that, uh, trying to really look at whether or not this occurs. But this is a big issue for, for many people because sometimes what results is that instead of taking people off of opioids, their opioid doses increase, their pain continues, and wouldn't it be important to know if one of the ways that we can reduce the amplification is by changing the medicine. And four recent patients um, that I have seen, um, one, this is the, the, a 47-year-old f- uh, 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 physician who I just mentioned with intractable migraine, responsive, unresponsive to all medical interventions. He had been told he had fibromyalgia by other people. We just proved that he had, at least from skin biopsy findings, evidence consistent with small fibroneuropathy. I told you that there's a recent publication uh, regarding that. The reference is right there, July 2016. Um, a 70-year-old female complaining of, fi- of, of, of um, chronic widespread pain as well as more localized trigeminal neuralgia pain, diagnosed in, included fibromyalgia, a detailed evaluation revealed no specific etiology, small fiber uh, testing through skin biopsy revealed um, reduced intraepidermal nerve fiber density. 22-year-old female with a 20-year history of pelvic pain told that nobody understood why she had pelvic pain. She had multiple surgical procedures, exercise, and she had been going from the Albany area to a pelvic pain specialist in Manhattan for years because nobody in the Albany area years ago would, would, would see her because she had such severe pain. She had multiple surgical procedures done there. She only got worse. One of our um, urologist has a special interest in using botulinum toxin um, into the pelvic floor muscles to alleviate pelvic pain. It only made things worse. We biopsied her. She has abnormalities of small fiber um, densities. Um, that was just recently done. These are all within the last couple of weeks. Um, um, 79-year-old female with recent stroke who um, re- was later referred for widespread pain complaints. So 79 year had a recent stroke. She was referred for pain management. We had no reason, she had no prior complaints of severe widespread pain before her stroke. They became more lo- less, less localized and more widespread. She also had intraepidermal fibro fiber testing 
that was reduced. That's also been published, uh, not this particular patient, but it was actually a, a publication um, representing other patients has already been published in pain medicine um, earlier this year. And Dr. Albrecht, who's in the audience, is one of the authors of this as well. So the, the, these are findings for me. Um, this was shown yesterday. This is work that um, our group has done in the past, showing pathologies in vascular innervation associated with fibromyalgia. These are based upon biopsies in this region of the, of the body. So multiple medical conditions are associated with sensory amplification, and I think that both of us have talked about that. Um, um, I don't think I gave as good a presentation as Dan did, um, and you can just felt out that the guy admitted that, and that's fine, because, I, and I mean this with, with I don't, I'm not going to call it as I, as I heard it, because um, I, I'm, I'm not telling you that I know why this is happening in every person, and I don't think it's fair to say that it's all centralized. I think we need to be still on the road to find out, um, knowing how the nervous system works, whether or not it's a bottom-up to top or top-down bottom, and I think it would be potentially very helpful for people who we take care of if we could identify, the diff the, you know, be open to the different ways in which the phenotype can occur so we can target treatment as much as possible. And so I realized I rambled a little bit because I don't really know what to say because I don't, I mean, I do a little bit, but I don't really know um, where the problem is in all people, even when the skin biopsies are done. So I don't think, I don't want to be labeled in your community as a small fiber person. Um, I just won't leave out the peripheral portions of the nervous system as a really important potential generators of what ultimately becomes centralized and may be, may be maintained by both peripheral and central um, factors. So recognizing the, sen the sensory amplification is very important in the patients you take care of, and we'd be happy to take your questions at this point. Um, you, had a, you had a question? In, or you, you start, sir. So th this is a big problem. The, a lot of the therapies, the non-pharmacologic therapies in particular, that, that are really helpful in treating these patients are not reimbursed. Um, you know, I think we're, we're making some inroads, and I, and I think that the kind of work that needs to be done, I mean, our group and others are doing them, are, are really looking at big data and, and trying to really get the true cost uh, that these, the, uh, 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 with respect to healthcare utilization, because at the end of the day, the, the insurers only care about money. Um, and so showing how costly these patients are as they circulate through our healthcare systems and that, you know, I can, I can order a structural MRI of the brain or of the back in any of these patients at any time and it's reimbursed at some rate that would pay for a year worth of uh, 
behavioral therapy and, and exercise and things like that. And so I, I think we really, all of us really need to work as hard as we can to re-educate third-party payers, large employers that often are really the, controlling the purse strings as far as what's reimbursed and what's not. Um, because the other downstream problem with these individuals is that they're, they're not just high healthcare utilizer. If they're employed, they have high rates of, of absenteeism, low rates of presenteeism. These are really functionally very um, disabling conditions that really um, affect people's work productivity and, and every other aspect of their life. So I think that um, I think we are making inroads and are making progress, but we still have very powerful sort of lobbies in the U.S. healthcare system that pay for doing, in, you know, uh, injections and surgical procedures and, and, and things like that, rather than sitting down with the patient, having, being able to spend the time to do a more nuanced look at them so you can look at the underlying mechanisms and then try drug and non-drug therapies. Uh, that takes a lot of time to do that right and to do that well, and, and our, our current reimbursement systems are, are not really taking that into account. I would just echo that um, um, Dan's group, it's Dave Williams, right? Yeah. So Dave, Dave Williams, incoming president or current president of the American Pain Society, yeah. um, it, it developed that online program that's free, and it's a fantastic program. So that doesn't require insurance, and if you can take the time, we can take the time to encourage people to use that, um, that may be a step in using non-medical therapies that could be very helpful. It's a really good program. The other thing I would recommend is that if you're a, a, a healthcare provider and you've heard about pain-based cognitive behavioral therapy and, and, but haven't really ever used it much because in your community either there aren't providers that give it or there aren't insurance companies that reimburse for it, go to that fibroguide.com for a half an hour and read through it yourself. You then can give pain CBT in the context of your office visits. And, and this was a big revelation when Dave Williams, 20 or so years ago, showed up to Georgetown and started working with me as a pain-based CBT person. And he, the, the first trial we did took half of my patients and gave them six one-hour sessions of group CBT, and the other half of my patients didn't get that, and I didn't know who was getting it. But after the, the study was unblinded, I was realizing that the patients that got the six one-hour sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy were so much easier to treat because they took a more active role themselves in their own management. And then I looked at it, and I'm thinking, oh, this is cool, but it's, this is, i got to you know, find a, enough psychologists to do this. And I looked at it, and it's like anyone can do pain-based cognitive behavioral therapy. Read through it. It's not, it, it actually is almost purposefully not requiring a psycho, the psychodynamic training that you would need if you were doing like Freudian types of uh, uh, things that psychologists do. A new kind of CBT that we just got done doing a trial with Mark Lumley, which does emotional disclosure and seems to be really effective in a small subset of people with chronic pain. It almost cures them of their chronic pain. That you actually need a trained psychologist to do because it's really more psychodynamic and you have to be specifically trained. But pain, plain old pain-based CBT that's in FibroGuide, um, adding uh, CBTI, the, the kind of a CBT that's used for insomnia, has recently been shown to be really effective in a lot of chronic pain states. You can do that in clinical practice if you just read fibro guide for a half hour or so and then just get used to, instead of feeling this pressure in the context of an office encounter to do something like change a drug or refer for a procedure or something like that, is to do a module in the cognitive behavioral therapy, say, this visit we're going to work on sleep. 
This visit, we're going to work on exercise. This visit, we're going to work on some of the different modules here. It freed me up. Um, for the, a lot of you in the room are old enough to have seen the, the TV show Batman. And I love Batman's bat belt because he could pull anything out of that bat belt, no matter what he needed. There was like a fish if there was a shark. or whatever. But my bat belt... Bo boomerang. Boomerang. But the, my bat belt went from three things that I could do for fibromyalgia patients, tricyclics, SNRIs, and gabapentinoids, to like 20 things when I, I read through pain-based CBT and I realized all the different things I could be working on in the context of return office visits rather than... Uh, and the other thing that I realized is that I was often, often switching people off of classes of drugs that were actually good drugs for them because I inappropriately thought when they came in during a flare that it was because the drug stopped working. If you look at the RCTs of the centrally acting drugs and the open label extension of these drugs, if they work in the person at the beginning, they keep working. They don't stop working in people. But, but, but again, what I realized is that I was inappropriately, when someone came in during a flare, which was usually because of a stressful thing in their life, that I was switching them off a medication that in fact was a good medication for them to be on because, of the, because I was too confined in my therapeutic approach. I was thinking all I could do is give drugs or refer to someone that might be able to do an injection. You had to do something. You had to do something. But, but even this is doing something, it's just not, there's a lot of things we can do that are not drugs or, or procedures or things so, like that. But along those lines, it, it could also, you can, there might be somebody comes in with a history of all this who has a localized area that's very painful. And they might benefit even from myofascial release, from trigger point, for thing. No, but again, don't I change the regimen. Yeah, don't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I alluded over and over again to those studies. Even if someone does have fibromyalgia, you can't ignore the peripheral factors. Right. Uh, Frank. Uh, I, I, I alluded to that, uh, and I said that you don't need to do that. There are standard sites in the lower extremity that um, would be expected to demonstrate abnormalities, even if their primary complaint was outside of that area. Okay. And let me, can I answer? I just want to be clear. This is where we do disagree. Um, is I don't think there's any role in 2016 for clinically for skin biopsy. Experimentally, the the the, the research that Charles is doing and Frank is doing and other people are doing, I think is worthwhile. But let's be clear, there's nothing, by, by finding a positive skin biopsy, there's no way in which you modify the treatment in 2000, or that you should modify the treatment in 2016. In fact, if you look at the reviews of, of even if you were to say that skin biopsy means someone has small fiber neuropathy, which is a big leap, Look at the reviews of small fiber neuropathy, and the, the drug and non-drug treatments for SFN are identical to those of fibromyalgia. There's nothing that you would do differently. That's not true. But, well, that, that's why we can disagree. No, no, but we reason yeah, why, yeah, the, yeah. Reason why, the reason why it's not true is because there, there are people we have taken care of. And I don't want to make a big debate about this because we want to hear his question. Um, but there are people we've taken care of who, after making that diagnosis, um, and so you could criticize me for what I'm about to say, but I'll tell you why you can criticize me. Um, oh, don't worry, I'll be able to figure it out without you helping. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> figure that. Uh, but no, we have been then through extensive, through a battery of blood tests, not just routine blood tests, but much more extensive blood tests that look at causes of small fiber neuropathy or underlying conditions associated with small fiber neuropathy, have been able to reverse that just based upon finding a different medical condition that's associated. So I would just differ you with you on 
that point. Well, maybe we should just be doing that workup because the. See, I, 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 knew, I knew that's no, why you're going to no, disagree with me. <laughs> no, no, is that I, every, I use your data that you presented to make the exact opposite argument. You found it in everyone with chronic pain, every chronic pain subset that you've looked it for it in, you find it in. So I would say if you really think that this is something that we should be, then, then let's, re, let, let's look at doing those tests in all people with chronic pain rather than, because every single cohort that you've looked for small fiber neuropathy and you found it in. Every cohort you've looked at, you say has centralized pain. In a subset, not in everyone. Right. Well, everyone doesn't with... Uh, I, already, I, I showed every, every, the continuum that only 30% of OA patients had centralized pain, and it's only the people in, in whom we find a high fibromyalgia score that we then move over to the, so those treatments. maybe what we should be doing is looking at fibromyalgia scores or other scores in people with Ehlers-Danlos, with the other conditions, and seeing... And if that's we the, do if that, that's we the published com- all those studies. Right. Yes. Yes, so. yeah. Oh, finish your question, sorry. You don't, I, I also mentioned, I also mentioned when I was speaking that this has to be done at a spe, by a specialized uh, pathologist or specialized center that, know, that has normal control data for intraepidermal nerve fiber densities so that your biopsy that you send can be compared to what's normal. And there aren't, well, I mentioned several academic centers, University of Minnesota, University of Rochester, Mass General. University of California, San Francisco has a, has a lab. There are commercial laboratories. Therapath is based in Manhattan. Um, Corinthian Laboratories is based in Texas. Um, there are others. Um, they uh, provide, they, each one of these entities, academic or otherwise, will provide you with a biopsy kit, uh, mailers. Um, it's not an expensive procedure. Um, and um, they have the specialized pathologists and also the normal data to help understand if, if the findings are there or not. And then it goes to what he was saying, based upon that result, what do I do? And then how, how often do I recheck whether it improved with my therapy? So um, um, the second last question I can't answer because I'm not sure that anybody knows the answer to that. But in condi- there, are, there are multiple conditions in which small fiber neuropathy which may have presented in a person with chronic widespread pain or amplified pain, um, an amplified condition, um, who has um, small fiber neuropathy in the context of a documented uh, or documented by the process uh, autoimmune disorder. And those individuals, so we've made the diagnosis, initial diagnosis of sarcoidosis, Sjogren's syndrome, uh, recently um, neurosarcoidosis in people with, uh, who, ne- who only came to see us because of these complaints and after ev- an evaluation, small, including small fiber neuropathy, who we have treated with immunomodulatory therapy, so IVIG, IV gamma globulin, which is an expensive treatment. But it's an expensive treatment that when people have immune-mediated um, uh, disorders can be very effective in getting them back to us to better function, back to work. Um, before leaving to come out here on Tuesday, I saw a gentleman who works every day, who has small fiber neuropathy associated with an autoimmune condition, and he's a great responder to IVIG. He's on limited medication. None of the medicines that were just talked about earlier helped him, um, um, and he's back to work and functioning. 
So I would admit, I would admit um, that we are only at the beginning of understanding how to make best use of the biopsy findings. You're making my head explode. Why? This is total. Again, this is. There's no. I will say again. There is no value of. If you are worried about sarcoidosis in someone, you eventually figured out the person had sarcoid by doing the right test to figure out if they had sarcoid. You didn't. Why did you have to do the small? Find a positive biopsy on small fibers. It's not like that's pathognomonic of sarcoid. You're right. So you're 100 percent right. But people you do a good history and physical. That's what you right, do. Right. You don't do a, a do something that's off to the side that is true, right. true, and unrelated. That's so, nothing sure, to do so with the what, what, what if somebody came to see you who had done, and you do a good history and physical, because I totally agree with that, and they don't have any pathognomonic signs of sarcoid, and they don't have any reason for you to test for sarcoid or Sjogren's syndrome per se or other conditions uh, initially, and that the only finding that they wind up having is their small fiber neuropathy. And that's the way, um, there are many people who start with neurological symptoms, and then this is off the topic a little bit, just as an example, there are many people who have neurological symptoms associated, neurological complaints first before their frank glucose intolerance is diagnosed. Could oh, be, so we should be using this to diagnose diabetes now? I didn't say that. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. What's glucose intolerance? No, 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 I'm not talking about small fiber. No, no, I said I'm going off topic because there are people, there are people, Dan, who have neurological, who have neuropathy, more generalized neuropathy, unexplained, who have never been, who wind up developing glucose intolerance uh, a year or two later, um, and so you know that as well. So I agree with you, a hundred percent, that if someone had a condition and obviously had sarcoidosis or Sjogren's syndrome, there would be little diagnostic reason to go ahead and biopsy everybody in that setting. But there are, you may not see the same people who I do, but we see people who are being sent to the pain center for treatment who have absolutely no diagnosis. And even if we do evaluate them carefully, they still don't jump out as having a specific diagnosis that was missed. So we do have to do some detective work. This might be way too boring a question. But no, we already agreed to disagree, so we can move on. Yeah. I always use a tricyclic first just because they're so inexpensive and, and when people do tolerate them, they work on all the symptom domains. They work on the sleep and the fatigue and the irritable bowel, irritable bladder. So I still will start with a tricyclic and then after that, and, my, and by the way, and this comes mainly from the fibromyalgia field, but cyclobenzaprine is my favorite uh, TCA. It's, it's, it's structurally very similar to amitriptyline, but it's a lot easier to dose. 5, 10, 15, 20 milligrams of cyclobenzaprine a couple hours before bedtime. Um, uh, good trials in fibromyalgia, but it's, but it's really been thought of as being a muscle relaxant. But if you look at it, it's structurally identical. It, it differs to, by one double bond. Right. So, so anyway, that I start with low-dose cyclobenzaprine. And then if the person has a lot of sleep problems um, or anxiety, I'll use a gabapentinoid next. If they have more depression, fatigue. Um, I'll use a SNRI next, but, I, but then you, you, based on sort of what's left over after a tricyclic, I'll either go in one direction or another. 
I didn't present the data, but um, who was the person that just did the really nice trial showing the combination of uh, Ian Gilrun? Ian Gilrun did a, a real nice trial showing the combination. I, 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 review, of a, I reviewed that paper. Of a, of, <laughs> of a gabapentinoid and a and a tricyclic or SNRI? Uh, SNRI. SNRI. It was duloxetine and and gabapentin or pregabalin. Uh, um, pregabalin. Pregabalin. That, that that people not only got a lot better w with the two drugs in combination than either of them separately, but what was surprising, and, and a couple other studies have suggested this as well, is the overall side effect profile of the two drugs together was better than either of them separately, they, because they seem to sort of mitigate each, the side effect profile or the AE profile um, almost balances each other out. So I, 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 as I'm sure Charles does, have a lot of people on all three of these classes of drugs, a low dose of a tricyclic at bedtime, um, a gabapentinoid, I usually try to give mainly a nighttime dose of a gabapentinoid and an SNRI during the, in the morning. So what are your thoughts about alpha-2, like tizanidine? I just found it not very well tolerated, that it's just real sedating and, you know, so, so I, I... I use it only at night. Yeah, well, I, 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 again, I would probably be pushing my tricyclic and my gabapentinoid up at night. But I, I'm not saying, I, I just haven't myself... No, 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 I, because, because there was that one study by John Russell right. where he measured CSF glutamate levels, and it, you know, you may have criticism of the design, but given the importance of glutamate in these conditions, right. it reduced, the use of dizanidine was found to reduce CNF, CSF to glutamate levels. Right. So. No, I wouldn't generally use it with another tricyclic. I actually use it instead of amitriptyline or nortriptyline. Just find that in general, it has more efficacy per, per unit of side effects in my hands. The other nice thing about it is you don't have to make as many dose changes as it's usually 5, 10, 15, or sometimes 20. But with tricyclics, with amitriptyline, I'm going up by 5 or 10 milligrams all the way from 0 to 70. And it just takes longer, at least in my hands, no, for I me agree. to get to a, the correct dose of amitriptyline or nortriptyline compared to cyclobenzaprine, where I've been able to find, you know, the, the only thing I would caution about, especially in, in people who are older or have cardiac histories, both cyclobenzaprine and amitriptyline of the tricyclic compounds are the two highest likelihood of sudden cardiac death associated with them. And um, so I just make sure that you're treating someone who doesn't have that kind of risk factor. I wouldn't be opposed to it. The one thing I use doxepin for is it's one of the tricyclics that comes in an elixir. So these people that are incredibly sensitive to any medication, you can have them start with an eyedropper and in a really and start with a really low dose of doxepin. It, it's it's one of the I think it's the only tricyclic that comes in a suspension or an elixir. It's also the only tricyclic that comes in a cream. It's used for skin conditions. Xylalon cream. Um, I, um, I would suggest that in the way that products are commercialized in this um, country, um, the sedating qualities of doxepin, which have been known for years, were repackaged and, market and studied for marketing purposes. So it could be marketed for that purpose specifically. Not that it's a new, it's not a new discovery. It's a new formulation of an old, yeah.
Oh, sure. I mean, historically, I think one of the big subtypes is, you know, the degree of, of sort of psychological comorbidities. That's a big issue, especially the trauma, stress, PTSD comorbidities. I think you have to treat those patients fundamentally different. Again, I, I alluded to the fact that we just got a, a, a big, just finished a big NIH-funded study looking at a fundamentally new type of, 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 it's more cognitive therapy than behavioral therapy for people that, that have more of the early life trauma, early life stress, and it looked, we compared it to plain old pain-based CBT, and the overall response rates with respect to the number of people who responded were not much different, but the percentage improvement in pain was more dramatic in this emotional disclosure group. And, and anecdotally, we had previously published a pilot study of 50 or so people using this technique. It's the technique that was popularized by John Sarno in the late, but, but he never did any trials. He just wrote books, books. <laughs> about it. Um, and so we've worked for the last 10 years or so and really operationalized this and made it manuals and everything like that. And what, but what we saw is there were you know, um, a much higher number of 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% improvements in pain in the emotional disclosure group, suggesting that in, in a small subset of pain patients, that, that this trauma is somehow you know, putting them in some sort of a short circuit, for lack of a better term, neurologically. And if you don't break into that, um, somehow you're probably not going to have a lot of um, success with respect to treating these individuals. So, um, you know, again, I think it's just really trying to look more nuanced at people, and that would be the other big demarcation that I would make. Now, having said that, we're now, we just got a big, big new NIH center grant where we're trying to look to see if there are any biological differences between the top-down and bottom-up people. Right now, if I look at those people, they don't look different with respect to what drugs they respond to. The only big difference is the, the, the bottom-up people get better when you remove ongoing nociceptive input and the top-down people don't. So the, the, the trials we're now doing with NIH funding are looking at people getting um, carpal tunnel repair, knee and hip arthroplasty, and looking at the people who have dramatic improvements in their centralized pain when they get, a, when they get their regional pain improved and trying to contrast those people from the people that might just have carpal tunnel with comorbid top-down fibromyalgia where uh, we're not, the carpal tunnel surgery is going to make their carpal tunnel better, but it's not going to do anything to their more widespread symptoms. But it'll be another five years before we get the, any data from those studies. Right now, I can't tell any biological difference between the two subsets. Well, well, sorry, sorry. Most of the classifications, Dennis Turk has done subgroups. They're all based on uh, psychological. He's done a more nuanced look at you know, the copers and different, um, I'm not sure, you know, once people have prominent psychological comorbidity, I, I, I just sort of say, okay, we're going to have to use some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. If that fails to work, then you might need to work with a psychologist or psychiatrist um, on these issues. I, I think usually cognitive behavioral therapy is used as a, oh, I, 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 nothing's working, so let's, let's end you there. Yeah, but I don't. But no, that's the wrong that way. That's the wrong way to use it. Don't no, think that's no, where it should. No, be no, used. I just said that's the yeah. wrong way to use it. Yeah, right. yeah. It yeah. should be used as one of the first line therapies in anyone that has right. any of these conditions because it's incredibly inexpensive and uh, and again non toxic compared to. I the think you made the point that we've been hunting for the molecular mechanism, and that's probably not the right way to look at it. One last question. I yeah, just no. want to respect your time.
Our studies to date have been in um, knee and hip arthroplasty and in uh, hysterectomy for pain. So we haven't done back pain. I would agree back pain is more of a mess with respect to the potential uh, pathogenic mechanisms and causes and things like that. So On any given day. On any given day. In so the we, same person. <laughs> the studies that I've been alluding to have been in, in disorders that I think are a little easier to get your arms around, and they've been mainly in knee and hip arthroplasty for osteoarthritis of the knee and the hip, where people clearly have severe, our orthopedic surgeons will not do hip replacement surgery until someone has bone on bone. In private practice, people will do orthopedic surgery a, a lot more readily, but, but our surgeons don't make any more money if they do 1,000 surgeries a year or 50 surgeries a year. So they really wait till people are really severe. So all of our studies are in people that do have severe osteoarthritis of whatever the target joint is. They're getting that joint replaced, and we're seeing markedly different responses to that re joint replacement surgery in people that have different fibromyalgia scores. Well, thank you very much for attending.